53, and if you're, uh, we're not here last week, we started a new series, it's called Equipped, um, and what we're looking at is being equipped for spiritual warfare, and so we're looking at spiritual warfare in the scripture, and, and uh, that, that we are in a spiritual battle, and so we'll be talking quite a bit about that this morning. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to look at verse 16 and 17, these are our theme verses uh, for a series, but we're going to, I warn you, we're going to be using quite a bit of scripture today. So either watch the screen or have your Bibles ready. And so we're going to try to cover quite a bit of scripture um, as we look at this important, important subject of being equipped, being equipped for spiritual warfare. So 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says this, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It means it's God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And notice this. It says that the, the Scripture, the Word of God, is profitable for doctrine. That's teaching. For reproof uh, and correction. Um, and sometimes as a pastor, we have to correct and we reprove. And notice this. But it also gives us instruction um, in righteousness or living righteous life. That the man of God, notice this, or servant of God, that the man of God or servant of God may be complete, thoroughly, can you say the next word with me? Equipped. That we will be equipped for every good work. And so we're going to be using the scriptures to try to help equip us as we look at this, 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 this battle that we're in, that we're in a spiritual warfare. Now we're going to go to Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 12, and then even next week we'll be back in this passage as well. But notice what he says here. Paul says to believers, to Christians, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles, against the schemes, against the plot of the devil, of your enemy, he says. Notice what he says, for we do not wrestle. He says, we do not wrestle. We are not in this battle against flesh and blood. But notice what he says, but against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age. And notice this, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. He says, we do not wrestle against just flesh and blood, but there's a spiritual battle that is going on. And, and we as followers of Christ are to be good soldiers of Christ. And in order to be good soldiers of Christ, we need to be equipped. And we will be looking at what it means to be equipped and what, are, what, what is it that we have at, at our advantage. And we'll be looking at that in the weeks to come. But I still want to spend a little more time this morning on why we need to be equipped. Because yes, we are in a spiritual battle. We're in a spiritual war. And Paul says, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And let me remind you of something. This spiritual battle that we are in, it is a battle. It is not a playground. And I like the word that the scripture uses. The Bible says we wrestle. We wrestle not. By the way, wrestling is the most godly sport that there is. It's in the Bible. The Bible says all the way back in the book of Genesis that Jacob wrestled with the Lord. Even the Lord himself was a wrestler. Amen? All the other sports were created for people who are not man enough to wrestle. That's the truth. Let me just illustrate this. You play basketball. You play football. 
but you don't play wrestle. You've never heard it. You, you'll never hear someone say, oh, well, what, what's, what sport do you play? You might say, well, I, I don't play wrestle. Because there's nothing, there's no play about it. When a guy can pick you up and drop you on your head. Come on now. You don't play that. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's what you do. It's who you are. There's a difference. You don't play boxing. You don't play MMA. That is hand-to-hand combat. And let me tell you something. You do not play in wrestling. It is, it is a battle. It is war. And the Apostle Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood. And so may I remind us, followers of Christ, understand this, that there is a great spiritual battle, good versus evil, that is taking place. And you and I are engaged in this battle. It reminds me of a, of a boxer who was getting ready to go out and, and, and fight for a, a title. And it was for the championship. And literally, he, you know, he's all pumped and he's all hyped to get out there. And his trainers, you know, like getting him pumped up. And he, and he goes out in the first round and he's you know, going to try to defeat the defending champion. And he gets out there and he just gets worked. I mean, he, his, his nose is bleeding, his, his right eye is swollen shut, his left eye is literally a, almost swollen shut, just blood coming out of his mouth and out of his lips, and it was just the first round. He thought, three minutes, oh my goodness, three minutes, and he gets back in there and he kind of sits in the corner and he sits in his chair and he's spitting out the blood and his trainer begins to give him the pep talk. He said, man, you're doing great, you're doing awesome. Just keep up the good work. He says, man, keep it up. He says, that guy's barely touching you. He's barely put a glove on you. And the boxer looks at his trainer and says, then somebody better keep an eye on that referee because somebody's beating the snot out of me right now. (laughs) You know, I think sometimes as Christians, that's us. And sometimes we try to smooth talk it and pep talk it. And we try and we try to find a way to smooth over the fact that the enemy many a times is getting the best of us. Come on, church. We don't want to acknowledge it and we don't want to admit it. But the fact of the matter is we are in a great spiritual battle that there is an enemy. And the Bible says here in our passage, Paul warns the church and he says, you're in a spiritual battle. And when you understand that you have an adversary, the Bible says in Peter, Peter says that we have an adversary. He's our opponent. He says he's, he's our enemy. He's as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And so I want to share with you a few thoughts about this spiritual battle. Number one, in a spiritual battle and warfare, you must first of all know yourself. Know yourself. When you play football, you know yourself. What's our strengths? What is our weaknesses? What is it about us? What what is it that we do? We must know ourselves. A boxer, a wrestler must know their advantages. And we're going to speak of this in the weeks to come, that there are advantages that we have. But we must first of all know ourselves. And I'll keep this part very brief. But it is this. That we are no match in and of ourselves for the enemy. You have, you do not stand a chance. You're like, boy, this is encouraging today, Pastor Joe. Let me just say it like this. You don't stand a chance against the enemy. You do not. You are outgunned 
and you are outmatched. You and I have no chance against the schemes and the wiles of the enemy. And I've got like this demon fly that's trying to attack me up here. (laughs) So you know yourself. Listen now carefully. You must know your enemy. I'm telling you, this fly is going to (laughs) die. I'm going to have to do the jujitsu on it. You better watch out. Or some Klein (laughs) Foo. My last name's Klein, by the way. Klein Foo, get it? Klein Foo? I thought that was a good one. (laughs) Jiu-Jitsu, Jiu-Jitsu, whatever. Uh, Should I just keep preaching and then, you know, just move on? Please stop, Pastor Joe. Please stop. Get to the Word. You know yourself... But you must study your opponent. You must know your enemy. May I remind you of something? Your enemy, Satan, studies you. He observes you. Watches you. Knows all about you. You and I, we have an opponent. As Peter says, we have this adversary, the enemy, opponent, who is as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I remember... Playing football, these guys play football, they, they observe film. What is it? Why do we watch film? Why do you guys watch film when it comes to the other team? Why do you do that? To learn your opponent. To know their strengths, to know their weaknesses, to know uh, how, how it is that we can exploit certain areas. And, and a team, you know, I, I used to coach, and we would go in on a Monday, and, and obviously we'd see our own film, and then we'd take out film, and then we'd watch our opponent. And immediately I'd begin to watch, ah, defensive ends. We can kick those ends out, and we can run right through that gap right there all day long. Oh, we can exploit the safety. We can go deep on that safety. He's four foot four, and we've got a six foot four receiver. <laughs> We're going to throw it up and lob it up right there. We're going to exploit that weakness. May I tell you something? You must know your enemy. You must know your adversary. The same thing when it comes to a boxer or in wrestling. We understand this concept that we must study our enemy and understand how our enemy works. And I want to remind you, church, remind you, followers of Christ, that you have an adversary, you have an enemy, and you must understand how he moves and how he works and how he strategizes because the Bible says that he's very crafty, he's very subtle, and, he, and, and it says beware of the many schemes that the enemy has to, to try to seek to destroy you, to wreck and ruin your life. We often think that the devil is ugly. He has these horns, a tail. He carries a pitchfork. But may I remind you of something that is not what the scripture teaches us. Now, let me say a few things about our enemy. The first thing is this, some things about what what he is not. You ready? He is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. Amen. Only God is. He is not omnipresent, meaning he cannot be everywhere. He can only be at one place at a time. Now, does he have many demons as we studied last week? Yes. 
When he fell from heaven, he took one-third of the angels who followed him, and there are many demons. We saw the story last week of the man who is possessed and how he says, we are legion, for we are many. So there are many demons. But many times people say this, well, the devil made me do it. I understand the concept, but it probably wasn't the devil. Come on now. I don't think most of us, myself, first of all, most of I'm not that spiritual that the devil himself is going to come and attack me. Come on now, right? But we understand it's the enemy who's behind it, and that is so true. But he is not able to be everywhere at all times, although he has his presence through his demonic forces. Another wonderful thing about this is also he is not omniscient. He is not all-knowing. And I don't know about you, but that's awesome too. I mean, we could start getting really deep here, but can I just say this? The devil cannot read your mind. Oftentimes, we think the devil can read our mind. Let me tell you something. The enemy, he is not omniscient, all-knowing. He cannot read your mind. Now, God knows the, th- the thoughts and intents of our heart because he is omnipotent, omniscient. Amen? He is all-powerful, all-knowing. But the enemy cannot read your mind in your thoughts. Is everyone tracking so far? Stay with me so that we can get done and go to lunch. Amen? But the enemy knows our weaknesses. Would you agree with that? He knows our, this, our struggles. And my weaknesses will be different than your weaknesses, just like a wrestler, a boxer, a football team. Some football teams are running teams. Some are passing teams. Some are strong on defense. Some have, are able to stop the run and maybe weak against the pass and fill in the blanks, you know. The idea is this, is that the enemy, he studies you. He's like a lion who looks for those who are weak and seeking whom he may devour. We may not want to hear this, but he will use past, our past against us. He's called the accuser of the brethren. And he will use our past and he will find any opportunity to try to to create just a little toehold. By the way, he starts with a toehold, gets a foothold, and before long he has a stronghold. Are you with me, church? And so he's very good at what he does. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 because we often think of the enemy as, as he, you know, this... He looks ugly and he has fangs and horns and a long tail and he carries a pitchfork. But this is not what the scripture teaches. And this is why you must know your enemy. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 14. Paul warns the the believers. He warns Christians. He says this. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers. But notice what he says. They transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, here's what we want to learn from this. For Satan himself, he transforms himself. Some versions will say this, disguises himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to the works. Paul says to us as believers, be cautious, be careful. Your enemy does not carry a pitchfork and have a long tail and fangs and have horribly bad breath and you can smell them from three miles away. 
No, the Bible says that he disguises himself as an angel of light. He appears as something that he's not. Growing up, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I'm about 25% redneck, just going to tell you that right now. All right, I grew up in Pennsylvania. That ought to explain a lot right there. Please forgive me, okay? But growing up in Pennsylvania, when I was a kid, we would have friends over, people over, and one thing that we had in our backyard, you know what it was? It was a big, huge, my dad bought this thing. It was a huge, there's so many bugs up in the Northeast, it's not even funny. Bugs. He bought this huge bug zapper. And it had this pretty blue light. And we would hang it up. And, and some people say, what did you do growing up? And I remember Friday, Saturday night, we would hang out. People would come over. We'd make homemade ice cream. We'd have pretzels. And we would sit on this big deck that, that my, my dad made. And we had this big bug light sitting there. And we would watch the bugs fly in. And, just <laughs> and I remember him sitting there eating a bowl of ice cream. Now, I know this sounds kind of morbid, doesn't it? You're like, you came from a strange family. I did. We'd all be out there sitting there, and I can remember, we'd look out across the yard, and all of a sudden I'd see, you could see out through, through the, uh, it's getting dark, and the blue light comes on, and here they come. Oh, the light is so pretty. <laughs> and I remember this one time we're sitting there, and I'm like, oh, guys, look, look at that. Huge moth starts making its way. You could see it from like 25 yards away and it's doing a little fluttering and it's like oh look at the pretty light look at the pretty light we're like oh guys this is gonna be a good one we would like sit there and like time with the timer how long they fried on the bug light and this was one big old moth and he, he and I thought oh you poor. and it could hardly fit into the the little cage that was supposed to protect us from from getting zapped and it was fighting its way, wanting to get in there, fighting to get in there. And, just, and I thought, you poor, unsuspecting soul. And I'll never forget <laughs> when that moth finally got to what he thought was a light, it sat there and it just, it not only zapped, it just burned and burned and burned. And then the stench was awful. How many of you guys still hungry for lunch, by the way? <laughs> it was awful. And we were like, it, it just kept frying. And you say, why are you telling stories about bug zappers? Because it's my therapy today, amen? <laughs> but isn't that how the devil works? Remember the first time driving through Vegas, but long before you get to Vegas, it blows my mind. I'd never been through Vegas in six, seven years ago. I remember we're going through going to go through Vegas, and I was heading to, from Arizona, going up to Vegas to go to Oregon. And I was probably, I don't know, 60 miles, 70 miles out of Vegas. And I was like thinking, is, am I, is my time off or what's going on? Is it, is, is it morning? Is the sun coming up? Because the sky was so lit up. And as I got closer and closer and closer, you could see the lights. How many of you know what I'm talking about, right? Down there in Vegas? What do they call Vegas, by the way? What city? Sin City. City. Isn't it interesting that the devil has a way of making sin look so pretty? Come on, church. Amen? 
the enemy disguises himself as an angel of light. And the Bible says the reason why is because he once was an angel. Very quickly, Isaiah 14. I just want to give you a brief little history of Satan. In Isaiah 14, double prophecy here, but here's a prophecy about Satan. He says, how are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer? Son of the morning, how are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? For you have said in your heart, here's his pride, here was Lucifer. Lucifer was once an angel. And he says this, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the, the far sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. <clears throat> I will be like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. You see, understand the reason why Satan is so good at disguising himself as an angel of light is because he once was an angel. In Ezekiel chapter 28, in Ezekiel 28, I want you to understand that he was the anointed cherub, the Bible tells us here. It says, you were in Eden, he's speaking heavenly Eden. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the sardis and the topaz and the diamond and the beryl and the onyx and jasper and sapphire, turquoise and emerald, uh, emerald with gold. He says this, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared before you on the day you were created. Let me remind you, Satan was created. Lucifer was created. He was an angel. You were in the anointed chair, meaning he was the highest of all angels who covers, the Lord says, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, uh, you became filled with violence within, and you have sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before the kings that they may gaze at you. The reason why I share these scriptures is to help you understand that the reason why Satan is so good at disguising himself as an angel of light because he once was one. And so he disguises himself. And understand, as the scripture tells us, Paul says, watch out. Because the enemy is very crafty. He's very subtle. He's very deceiving. And he appears as something that's beautiful. And he will use temptation and, and make things appear to be something that they're not. Satan's temptations are subtle. Look with me in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. Here in 2 Corinthians 11, he says this. Paul again says to this church, he says, I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Paul again says, listen, I warn you that Satan is very, he, he's a liar. He'll deceive you. And he is so good at lying and he's so crafty and he's so subtle and he will deceive you and he'll trick you. And you need to be on guard. You need to beware. You need to watch out. 
because he was so subtle. Let me say it like this. The devil rarely says, hey, here, I'm going to wreck your life, and this is how you wreck your life. This is how you do it. The devil doesn't work that way. Oftentimes, when you see these, and I'm not trying to be mean here, but oftentimes when you see people who have gone down a path of destruction, most of the time, they didn't wake up one day and say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to wreck my life. That's what I'm going to do today. I just, you know what? That's on the agenda for today. Wreck my life. No, the enemy deceives them into making steps and choices and decisions that lead to a of destruction. Are you with me, church? The little bug flying up to the pretty blue light had no clue what's about to happen. Look with me in Genesis chapter 3. You see, Paul reminded us of the, the account of the fall of Adam and Eve. And he said this, that Eve was deceived. I want to tell you something, that the devil is a liar. Jesus said while was here on earth, he says that he, he's speaking of Satan, is the father of all lies. And the devil will tell you all kinds of lies, and this is why we need to be equipped, and we'll begin even next week looking at the advantages that we have, and why, why you need the belt of truth, and why you need to put on the armor, because the devil is a liar, and he will tell you lies, and he's so good at it. Have you ever known someone's a liar and they're just, I mean, the most, how many of you ever met like one of those really convincing liars? I mean, they're so good. Trust me, I've met a couple of them. I mean, they are so good at, they have you convinced. I mean, even if you knew the absolute truth, like you just knew it, the, the way they talked and the way they told you and as convincing as you were, you would still believe them even if, even when you already know it's not true. How many, you know what I'm talking about? The enemy is like this. He will tell you lies. He will deceive you. He will trick you. In fact, he will deceive you and trick you into thinking that you're doing the right thing, that this is good. This is a good decision. Yet many a times that good decision is contrary to what the, what the Bible says. By the way, you'd be surprised how many times I've had people blame God for sin. Pastor, you won't believe this, but God told me to do it. God's never going to tell you to do something that's contrary to the word of God. Okay, wait, I have to say that again because no one heard what I just said. God will never tell you to do something that's contrary to the word of God. Amen? Amen? You'd be surprised how many times many people won't even blame the devil. They'll say, God told me to do this. Can I tell you something? That is blasphemy. And you're on dangerous ground. To blame God or to say that God told me to do something that does not line up with scriptures. It's really quiet. Genesis 3, 1 through 5, we see just how subtle and crafty Satan is. Man, powerful passage. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. So much here. This is a whole other teaching, interesting stuff. But I want you to understand that the serpent that you and I see today, the snake or the serpent that we see, is not the same serpent before the curse. Does this make sense? In fact, he's categorized in the beast of the fields 
as a beast. We don't know exactly what the snake or serpent used to look like, but we know that the serpent, from what we can see in scriptures, was very, very beautiful. Satan chose a median, if you will. He chose something that he could possess, and he chose the most smart, most crafty, the most subtle of all of God's creation. He chose it. And so he chose the serpent. We don't know exactly. Most people believe the serpent definitely had appendages, arms or legs, most likely stood upright. That's for a whole other debate and discussion. I'm not here to argue over those things. But we do know this, that in verse 14 of this chapter, afterwards, God curses the serpent. To me, it's a type, it's a sign that, like this. For example, the rainbow. What does the rainbow mean? The true biblical definition of the rainbow. That God will what? Never flood the earth. It's a promise from God. That's what the, the rainbow is symbolic of. When every time you see a snake, every time you see a serpent, we should be reminded of the curse of sin. That once this great, beautiful, created being, this once great, beautiful thing, because of its sin, is now slithering and eating the dust of the ground. By the way, if you and I fall to sin many times, we too will be cursed, if you will, and we'll eat the dust of the ground. Are you with me, church? And so it's a type, it's a picture, it's symbolic. But of all the creatures, he chooses this beautiful creature, he chooses this serpent, this snake that was cunning and deceitful and, and, and not in a negative way necessarily, but because of this creature and its, its ability to be cunning, he says, I'm choosing this one. Let me remind you of something. There's only one snake that I like, and that's a dead snake, okay? <laughs> I lived in Arizona, and we had rattlesnakes everywhere. And so he chooses this serpent to beguile, to deceive, to trick Eve, to lie to Eve. And notice what happens. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? He asked her a question. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the tree that there happened to be right there at, but of the fruit of the tree. And it's interesting, we have a picture of an apple and a snake up there. But here's what's interesting too. Why does the apple get blamed for being the fruit? Does any of you right, you know? Why was it the apple? Is it because they're just so beautiful and they taste good? We don't know what fruit tree it was, by the way. That's just, you probably already knew that. But it was a fruit tree in the middle of the garden. And she said, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. That's a whole other message there. Did God ever say you couldn't touch it? No. Be careful when you add to the word of God, too. God just said you can't eat it or you will die. Listen to this. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Liar, liar, pants on fire. He lies. He casts doubt on God's word and he tells a bold-faced lie. For God knows, listen to what he says, for God knows in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened 
and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He lies to her, deceiving her. Now, follow my, my thought here. I may be completely wrong. I was wrong one time way back once. Let me ask you something. Does it not come to your mind like she's talking to a snake or a serpent or an animal? They're having a conversation. How many of you have ever thought, okay, what's that all about? Yes, no? Have you ever, you know, or you just don't think? <laughs> you don't read the Bible and think. You're just kind of... Do you think about these things? Somebody please, yes? yes? Do you want me to give you my hypothesis about this? I think potentially this beast is sitting there eating the fruit. Can't prove it. But regardless of whether it's eating the fruit, what he's basically saying is, I've eaten the fruit, and now look at me. I can now have conversation with you. I'm now on a higher level of intelligence. Does that bear witness a little bit with you guys? What was the whole purpose to eat the fruit? Not just because it was good. What was the purpose to eat the fruit? So that you could what? It was a disobedience to God, but so you could be what? Like God. And so for Eve, even the fact that this creature is speaking to her was a part of his deceit. Is, is this, can I, does this make any sense? This was all a part of Satan's deceit, that I will actually speak to her, I will talk to her, and because I can speak and communicate at a high level, and I'm just a, an animal, and I'm now able to have this conversation, how much more will it do for you if you eat of this fruit, then you will become like God. And so he lies. He says, your eyes will be opened. All their eyes were opened, but not like what she thought her eyes would be opened. And she disobeyed God. And when they ate, their eyes were opened to see their own shame and their own nakedness. They had to run and they hid from God. I'm thankful that God came and searched them out. Amen? But Satan didn't say to her, I want to ruin your life. I want to see you begin now to die a slow death. He didn't say that. He, he deceived and tricked her. As the New Testament says, Eve was deceived. And so Satan's temptations are subtle. He will lie to you. He will tell you all kinds of lies. He will tell you that the grass is greener over there over the septic tank, you know? Yeah, it's greener over there. But why is it greener over there? He appeared to have Eve's well-being in mind. He appeared to the, as if he cared about Eve. He cast doubt on God's word. I know a better way for you, Eve. I know a better path for you, Eve. And may I even say it like this. God is holding out on you. And I can help you obtain even more than what God can give you. 
Many a times we believe the lies of the enemy. Satan's techniques are subtle, but let me just, in the next few moments, just remind you of this as well, but Satan's techniques are getting more and more refined. From this account in Genesis chapter 3, he's had well over 6,000 years of experience. He's gotten better at what he does. We see men like Samson, godly men fall. We see Eve fell. We see even a godly family when Job is being tested, and we'll look at him in the future, but Job's test. We see that the enemy got to Job's wife. And Job's wife says to Job, why don't you just curse God and die? I'm about to make a statement. Listen to this carefully. If the devil cannot get to you, he will get to those close to you to try to get to you. You want me to say it one more time? If the devil cannot get to you, he will get to those close to you in order to get to you. He wasn't able to get through Adam. So what did he do? He came through Eve. He tried to take out Job. And what happens is this, is that Job stood strong. So he uses his wife to try to get to Job. He is so good at what he does. He has experience men like Peter and although we criticize him men like Judas were deceived by his schemes and his plots and his tricks we think of Peter Jesus even warned Peter he said hey Peter be on guard watch out because Satan desires to sift you as wheat may I say to you as well the enemy desires to sift you as wheat you must be prepared you must be on guard. You must know yourself that you are no match for the enemy. Look at Jude verse 9, my last passage this morning as we wrap this up. In Jude verse 9, it says this, that Michael, he's the archangel. Many of you probably have heard of him, the most powerful angel. In contending with the devil... When he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The, the idea here is what the scripture is saying is that Michael is no match for Lucifer. Lucifer was the anointed cherub. He's the most powerful created, created being. Second most powerful being that there is. But God is all powerful, Amen. And when we see here, and this is just another example, that even the angels in spiritual battle and spiritual conflict, they do not go to war in their own strength, in their own power. They do it in the power of Jesus Christ. We see that Michael was no match for Lucifer. You and I are no match for the enemy. And we are in a spiritual conflict, a spiritual battle, and the enemy wants to wreck your life. He seeks whom he may devour. And you and I must be equipped, and we must, as we'll be studying here soon, 
We must look at our advantages. You need to know yourself that you and I cannot do this battle in our own flesh. Do not think that somehow you can be smart enough to do it on your own and strong enough to do it on your own. You cannot overcome the enemy, not even Michael the archangel. And when you study in Scripture, angels are powerful beings. One angel went through the land of Egypt and killed the firstborn of every child. Uh, uh, of every male child in Egypt. You study throughout the Old Testament, one angel, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. That's one angel. Michael, the archangel, had no, was no match for the adversary, but he did do this. He understood spiritual warfare, and he spoke the name of Christ, and he spoke the name of the Lord, and he says that he, he was able to rebuke the enemy in the power of the Lord. And so we must know our advantages. Our first and most important advantage that we must know is this, is that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That the Bible says in Ephesians 6.10 where we started, be strong, be strong what? In the Lord. And in the power of what? His might. The Bible tells us in Corinthians, he says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. John, the apostle said in 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We must know our advantages, and we must know that we can do it in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is possible to live a victorious Christian life if we are equipped. Amen? We must know our advantages. And so next week, we'll begin to look at what we have for our spiritual warfare. What do we have? What is our body armor? What do we have to protect us against this enemy? as we will look at the, the belt of truth to help us overcome the lies that the enemy is throwing at us every single day. We will look at the advantages that we have, and then eventually we'll even look at the weapons, the arsenal that God has given us. But let me encourage all of you that we can live a victorious life through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. But once again, I do want to awaken us in my prayers that our eyes are opened that we are in a great spiritual conflict that the enemy is at work live like you are at war because you are live like you are at war because you are we are in a great spiritual conflict good versus evil May our eyes be opened. Amen? May our eyes be opened. May we live like we are at war so that we will not be overcome by the enemy. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Lord, I pray.